Has anyone here read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Yeah, I read it because I want some friends, you know, why not? (laughs) And if you've read it, you know this, there's a section of that book that says, a person's name is really important. Use their name, right? When you talk with someone, use their name. We know this. When you meet somebody, what is the first thing that you do? What's your name, right? What's the second thing that we do? Forget their name. (laughs) And for the next year, we call them dude and bro and do that, right? What's up, guy? (laughs) And what's the third thing we do? We ask a friend, hey, what's that guy's name? Be careful who you ask. So many years ago, I'm an assistant pastor at Applegate. And myself and Jim Wright, he was an assistant pastor out there then. He's now pastor of Mountain Church in Medford. We were kind of together in the entryway greeting people. And this guy came in that I should have known his name, but I had forgotten it. So I looked at Jim. I said, Jim, what's that guy's name? He goes, his name is Kenny. I'm like, great. I'm like, hey, Kenny, what's up, Kenny? And he'd be with his wife. And I'd be like, look at it. You guys are beautiful. It's Ken and Barbie. This is awesome. Right? So Edgewater starts and he follows us over here and it's every time, hey, Kenny, 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 Kenny. Well, five years, five years. One Sunday, I'm like, hey, what's up, Kenny? He goes, Matt, bro, my name is not Kenny. My name is James. I'm like, wow. I said, well, my name isn't Matt, it's Mark Scudstad, so we're even. All right, bro? <laughs> Names matter. So we are in a section of Nehemiah that reads like an ancient Hebrew phone book. It's lists of names, and we've done some of them already. Well, chapter 11 is a bunch more names. And it's easy to skip the names, like, oh, I can't do this. I can't read an ancient Hebrew phone book. But... The New Testament says this, it's 1st, 2nd Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable. You and I can get profit from all of scripture. It can teach us and form us and we can learn from it. Sometimes it's really easy. Other times you got to roll up your sleeves and think about, okay, God, why do you include all these names? What's happening here? What can I take from this? How do I learn about Jesus from this text? And so we're going to roll up our sleeves in chapter 11 because it's a list of names. But I think you're going to see it's brilliant because all scripture is God-breathed. So let's jump in. Nehemiah 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of nine to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. 
But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athaye, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, and of the sons of Perez, Messiah, the son of Baruch, son of Kol, Jose, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joireb, son of Zechariah, son of the Shilonite, and all the son of, sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Here's what I want you to see. Sacrifice. Verse two tells us this group of people willingly lived in Jerusalem. Verse six calls them the valiant men that went to live in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was not a place anyone wanted to live. We know now it has a wall that's been the first part of Nehemiah was they went and they built a wall. But how well was that wall built? Remember in chapter three, we're given the builders and the builders are like pastors and governors and there's a goldsmith and a perfumer that build the wall, okay? Who's missing from the list of builders? Jacob, the bricklayer, Simeon, the mason, Isaiah, the contractor, right? That's who's missing. It's all the wrong people. If you are getting a fence built and you need it to be secure and to keep out bad things, would you hire a perfumer to build it? Bro, you smell so nice, you're hired. I don't care what you do. Like people are looking at the wall and like, was that permitted? I don't think the bank would loan on that, right? That's what it is. So no one wants to live in Jerusalem. If you could Google in 430 BC, top 1000 places to live in the world, Jerusalem does not make the list. It's dangerous, it's rough, it's dirty, it's bad. And two groups of people end up moving to Jerusalem. The first group, verse one tells us, are leaders. Verse six says they are valiant men. They're strong, they're studs. So let's imagine this for a second. You are financially well off. You're healthy. You can live anywhere you want. Are you choosing to live in a dangerous spot? These leaders say, we're gonna risk it. We're gonna be the one that takes the hit first. We're gonna be on the front lines. We don't have to. It's not because they desired it. It was mission. We're doing this because we can do it because we're the strongest, because we're the, we're the valiant. We're gonna be willing to sacrifice our own desires to help the weak and the lesser feel safe when they come to God's temple, to make sure that they have opportunity to worship and praise. We're putting ourselves out there. We don't have to, we're willingly doing it. I love that. To me, these six verses are the gospel. That's what the gospel is, isn't it? The strong for the weak. In fact, it's this idea 
that saves one of the most influential people on Christianity in the last 70 years. His name is C.S. Lewis. Anyone heard of him? Kind of a big deal, right? Well, if you don't know, C.S. Lewis was a professor of medieval literature at Cambridge and Oxford in England. And as a young professor, he was an atheist. And he was quoted as saying this as a young atheist. He was quoted as saying he was angry at God for not existing. Yeah, that's a little tongue twister. They're like, what? What? Hold on. Hmm. Right? And what bothered C.S. Lewis the most was all these professors that were around him were believers. One of them in particular. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is J.R.R. Tolkien. Perhaps you've heard of him. Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, Simmerillion, like brilliant as well. Well, so Lewis is this atheist, just kind of uh, teeth set on edge. And then you got J.R.L. Tolkien. And this is what Tolkien did. He started to talk to Lewis because Lewis was a, the expert on Celtic myths. And what Lewis was being told by Tolkien was this, listen, all those myths, they're not true, but they're telling you and me the true story that the human heart is tuned to something, that when we hear it, we resonate with it. That's true. And so he started to retell Lewis all the myths and say, those aren't true stories, but aren't they telling you and me something true? Kind of like this, right? So Beauty and the Beast, true story? No. But doesn't it tell you and me something true that we want to be true? That if we could see someone that had unconditional love for us and unrivaled beauty, that it would melt and take away everything gross inside of us? Don't we resonate with that? Hercules, the strong one that all of us need, we need someone stronger than us, more able than us to save us, that all these stories are telling something that we resonate with. Peter Pan, true story? Mm-mm. Does it tell us something true? Absolutely. That all of us want to go somewhere where we never grow old, where we don't have shoulder injuries and knee pains and all those problems, where we never grow old and we can fly. Why? Because it's the echo of Eden in us. We know we were never designed to die. We were designed to live in paradise, in communion with each other, in brilliance and beauty, right? Where we could fly. It tells us that story that all of them are saying this. The Lion King, true story? No. Nope. Does it tell us something true? Yes, that there's a usurper on the throne. And when he's in control, look out. He throws the whole world into chaos and destruction and fire and famine. But when the true king returns, flourishing comes with him. And all of us are waiting for the true king to come back. I can go on and on. The Hunger Games, whatever it was, 10, 15 years ago. Wildly popular, why? Because in it, it had the true story. If you don't know that story, that's dystopian future, everything's crazy. And they had these games every year where they collect 24 kids and they force these 24 kids to fight each other until one's left that they kill each other, right? Just brutal dystopian. And the story starts with they're selecting the kids and no one wants to do it. And the weakest most vulnerable girl is chosen. She will get slaughtered in the games. And what happens? The strong, valiant one says, no, take me instead. I'll go in her place. Man, those are the stories that we resonate with, right? 
because we know they hit something in us. That's true. That's how life is supposed to be. So Tolkien is telling Lewis this. Listen, all the myths, they're not true, but they resonate the human heart because we are tuned to hear the true story. And as his testimony goes, one day C.S. Lewis says, I got on a motorcycle as an atheist to go to the zoo. And when I got off, I'd prayed to God to save me. I think many a man has got on a motorcycle and prayed to God to save them. So that's been repeated. That's a true story that gets repeated all the time. It hit him. That's what we're seeing right here. The leaders, the valiant men, the ones that had the might, the ones that could have said, I'm not moving to Jerusalem. I got money and power. I'm not doing that. They're the ones that said, take me first. I'll live there. I'll give up my rights for the weak. See, the world works on might is right. If you can do it, if you're strong enough, then you do it, you take whatever you want. The real world is supposed to work on the mighty do what's right. I'll give up of myself. I'll sacrifice my rights. I'll go there, not because I desire to, but as a mission, because it's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, left his place of comfort, didn't have to, came down, sacrificed for you and me. It's the true story. And you see it with these guys right here. And as I studied that section this week, I thought to myself, like, where am I actually sacrificing? Where am I giving up my rights, my thing, my deal for those that are weak, for those that do not have? Where are we doing that? Because when we do, we're retelling and resonating with the only real true story ever told, the gospel, right? You see that in this chapter. And then there's a second group that go. It's right here. I'll read verse one again. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. I call this trust. They trust. So would you trust this? You come up here with another family. Casting lots would be like flipping a coin. So one family's right here, one family's right here. And I flip a coin to decide where you're going to live right? Heads, you're, you're going to move not to Idaho or Tennessee, the last safe places in America. No, nope, you're not moving there. You're going to move to Portland. That's where you're going, right? Land of needles and homeless and pride parades and all kinds of chaos and drug addicts with their pants around their ankles, howling at the moon. You're moving there with a flip of the coin. Anybody going to come up and do that? Because I got a coin right here. I'll do it. No, you're not going to do that. But this is exactly what these people do right here. Okay, Lord, cast lots. Now, why would they do that? Here's why. Check out Proverbs 16.33. The lot, same idea. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from when they were engaged in this casting of lots, the core of it was this. Okay, I trust God. I trust that in the casting of lots, God will put me where I'm supposed to be. 
Now, in the New Testament, we don't flip coins or cast lots to determine God's will. We have prayer, and we have God's spirit, and we have the scripture, and we have counsel, and we have a peace that passes all understanding. That's how we're guided. We're guided by our circumstances, all that kind of stuff, right? This group, though, trusted God in the casting of the lots to figure out, okay, is this what I'm supposed to do? And it was against their will. The willing had already volunteered. We saw that. The valiant, the strong, the noble, they'd already volunteered. This is the rest of the group that's like, yeah, I don't really want to live there. Can God ask you to do something you don't want to do? Right? That's what you're seeing right here. Can God ask me to do something that I'm not comfortable doing? So I went and visited a family a couple weeks ago and they'd gone through a really hard time. They'd lost a baby. So I'm talking with them and the husband was talking about being at the emergency room and in the emergency room, uh, they were waiting because sometimes there's a lot of people there. So they're waiting and the husband just felt like God was saying, you need to go share with that guy over there. You need to tell him what's going on in your life. He needs it. And this husband was like, I just didn't want to do it. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. You're not going to do that to me, God. I'm not doing that here in the emergency room. I'm not going to do that. You ever had that conversation with God? Okay, so he's in that conversation. No, 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 no. Well, so he ends up having to use the bathroom or something. He comes out of the bathroom and the dude's right there. He's like, hey, what's going on, right? And so God had to force them together. And they said, man, it was one of the most brilliant conversations I've ever had. But we're so easily like, no, no, don't make me uncomfortable. Don't do that to me. Does God have the right to send us where he wants? Even sometimes against our will. I remember... Uh, when Charity and I were dating and we were ready to be engaged and ready to kind of start towards marriage, I was finishing up a full year at a, at a discipleship program, not living in Grants Pass. And I was looking forward to getting back and seeing Charity all the time and all that kind of stuff. Well, the night before I moved back to Grants Pass, I was asked, would you for one year go to Vanuatu and teach the Bible? And I'm thinking in my head, Vanuatu. That sounds a lot like I don't want to. That's exactly what that sounds like right there. <laughs> but I did. And it was the best year of my single life. It was brilliant. It's amazing. It was incredible. We have to get like, is God allowed to ask me to go to somewhere that I don't want to go? Do I trust him to do that? I think in America, we've made an idol of two things, safety and comfort. God, don't make me unsafe and don't make me uncomfortable. You can ask me to do every, anything you want, but don't make me unsafe and don't make me uncomfortable. And idols always rob us. When we make those and say, God, I won't do anything unsafe and I won't do anything uncomfortable. Okay, an idol's gonna rob you. I think we're being robbed of purpose and life and an abundant and mission and experience, and treasure, and all the things that are intangible. We're robbed because we're like, don't make me unsafe. Don't make me uncomfortable. Where are the Jim Elliots of today? If you know his story, he and a group of guys in college just had this passion for the lost in South America, in the Amazon. And they're like, we want to share the gospel with them. We're going to go down there. And he risked it all, end up being killed by them. But this is what he wrote right before he went. He wrote this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
Eventually, all of us are going to lose our life. I'm going to keep it. But man, you gain things you cannot lose when you're willing to be Jim Elliott's. Do we trust God when he calls us? Do whatever method God uses, a sermon, people, circumstances, prayer, still small voice, all the way, do we trust him? That his path for us is actually the best path, the path that we actually want. We just don't know it at the time. Do we trust him? Do we give up safety and comfort for the great call that God has on us? The Bible says this, perfect love casts out all fear. Safety and comfort are dominated by one thing, fear. When you know you are loved supremely by your heavenly father, you'll trust him. Cast the lots, do whatever you got, because I trust you. If I'm supposed to live in Jerusalem or Portland or someplace, I trust you, God, because perfect love casts out all fear. Do we trust him? Do we trust him? These guys did. And then I love these verses, verse 15. And of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashem, son of Azikram, son of Hashabiah, son of Buni, and Shabbatiah, and Josebad of the chiefs of the Levites who were over the outside work of the house of God. Who are these guys named in the Bible? Landscapers, right? They're taking care of the outside of the house of God. What giant corporation on their website lists out, not the CEO, but the landscapers? I haven't seen it yet, right? God does. Hey, check out my landscapers. We've got some great people here. Eddie, and Jamie, and Juan, and Nathan. They're unbelievable. And I don't think that they love cleaning toilets or weeding or picking up trash left by urban campers. I don't think they love that. You know what they love? They love Jesus and they love us. And they demonstrate it all week long by making sure that there's a great place for us to gather that's beautiful and incredible, that when funerals happen here and weddings happen here and birthday parties happen here and women's Bible studies happen here and game changers happen here and all those things happen here, that we have a beautiful place to come to. And I know they've got other opportunities where they can make more money and do more things and have all, but they've decided, no, part of my ministry is I'm gonna stay here at Edgewater and make sure that it is beautiful. Yeah, they're awesome. They humble me. And this little text to me, it shines light, I think, on a broken view we have of work. That we think work is a curse. That you have to do it till you retire. Like, oh, what a bummer. All right, all right, gotta work for the man. That's what I think we look at work. Like it's broken, it's per curse. I don't believe that at all. I think the reason why we have such a broken view of work is many people take jobs for the wrong reasons. And the reason that we choose a job is now money. How much money am I going to make? Listen to what Proverbs says. It's Proverbs 16, 26. It says this, a worker's appetite works for him. Here's what Solomon is saying. All of us have these appetites, these desires. And when your appetite or your desires line up with what you're supposed to be doing, man, it works for you. 
Like, oh my goodness, this is what I love to do. This is what I want to do. That's when it's right. But too often we choose a job for the wrong reason. Like doctors used to choose being a doctor because they had love and empathy and they wanted to help people and heal them. Now a lot of people choose to be a doctor because money. Lawyers used to be justice and fairness and making sure things were done right. Now it's money. Well, there's a crisis right now among doctors. Maybe you've read it, but especially young doctors. They're super just kind of dissatisfied with their jobs. Could it be that they don't have an appetite for it? That that was all about the money and now they don't have an appetite. They were broken when it comes to work. And so the Proverbs go on to say this, chapter 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work, doing what his appetite's supposed to be doing? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Man, when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, people look at it and say, that is awesome. You get brought before kings. It's brilliant. It's amazing. And I get asked by people sometimes, well, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? How do I know? I think sometimes you just work hard because you got to pay your bills. And that is fine. I'm taking care of my family. I'm paying my bills. I'm making sure my wife stays at home. Man, that is awesome. That's a great thing. But if you're choosing a career, here's what I tell them. It should be joy squared. I should have joy when I do it. And then other people should have joy when I do it. Both of those. That's how you know your career. So if I love teaching the Bible, but no one loves to hear me teach the Bible, maybe I should choose something different. Might be a really hard career to do. It's joy squared. It's both of those. I had a theology professor. He would say this. He would say, do what you love and then figure out a way to make money at it. We do the opposite, right? How much money is in it? I'll do whatever's required till I retire. This theology professor don't do work that way. If you're looking for a career, find out what you love to do and then worry, eh, money will come. If you do it skillfully, you'll be brought before kings, the proverb says. But we're kind of just broken now. And sometimes you gotta try a lot of stuff. I was an engineer for a while, product manager for a while, missionary for a while in Vanuatu in Mexico. Um, I was an assistant pastor and then Edgewater started and went, Yes, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Joy squared, I hope. This is what God's called me to do. Is it hard? Yeah. Is it good? Yeah. It's both of those things. It's brilliant. And sometimes I think that we believe work is part of the curse, right? Well, we just studied on Wednesday night. Carrie taught us through Genesis 2. And guess what? Work comes before the curse. That work is redemptive, it's beautiful. It's part of the design of humans. Do you know the two most dangerous days in a man's life? The day he is born, these are the two days you're most likely to die on. The day you are born and the day you retire, right? Something happens to this purpose and the way God has designed us, two most likely. I'm not saying don't retire, I'm just saying, note it, we were never designed to retire, right? Change, no doubt but always be active and involved in doing something that God has you doing. And to me, the most important thing is when God became a man, what did God do? Was he a king, a sheik, a pharaoh, a professor, a philosopher? No, what did Jesus do? He was a carpenter. 
He worked with his hands. I love those shirts now. Dirty hands, clean money. I love that. Man, he got his hands dirty, but he was clean, good, noble money. I love that, right? I think work is broke and we gotta reclaim it, that it's a good, noble thing. Too many graduates, I think nowadays, they wanna graduate from high school and figure out how to live off the government because there's broken view of work. No way. Work is noble and beautiful. And if you use your skill well, it will bring you before kings. God has gifted you. Go, work hard. It's brilliant. Your name is gonna be recorded right here, landscapers. That's how much God likes work, All right? And then notice this, the diversity. So you got, if you read through this whole thing, and you can, leaders, city slickers, country folk, overseers, priests, mighty men, drafted men, Levites, these are career kind of church people, gatekeepers, law enforcement, singers. There's diversity in this chapter. The word's been stolen from us, but it's actually a really good word. There's diversity. You and I are called in the New Testament a body. Is a body the same body part? Are we all ears? Are we all eyes? Are we all mouths? No, there's incredible. Yes, we're unified because we're one body, but there's incredible diversity that makes a body work, all the parts. And there are three texts if you wanna look at what the church is supposed to be as a body. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. And all of them are unity, one body. Diversity, different body parts. And when they work correctly, there's maturity and strength and brilliance and incredibleness. I love that. I think in America, we have elevated two positions above every other body part. You know what they are? Preaching and praise. I call it hair and face churches. If you preach well and you praise well, great TED Talk concert, then you'll be successful. Hair and, hair and face. You can ignore everything else like gospel proclamation and helping the weak and assisting and all the, you don't have to do any of that. If you do hair and face well, then you will have a successful, brilliant church. But is it really successful? No way, no way. What's the body? What's the head? What's the face without the lungs or the heart or the liver or the kidney, all these other parts? Well, it's dead. It's gonna die. They don't last if you get cancer, do you care about your hair anymore? No, do whatever you got to do to me, doc. Why? Because the body is more important than the hair. That's what you see. I love that. Now, I love preaching and I think it matters and I love praise, but not at the, at the expense of these other things. So to me, and I've said this many times, when we get together like this on Sunday mornings, I call this halftime. The game's played out there. This is halftime right here. You need a halftime. You come in, you get a... Uh, hopefully a new play from the playbook. You hear from your high coach, man, good. You get refreshed. You, you high five each other for a play that you did out there. It's good. You get refreshed. You eat an energy bar or a donut here, whatever it is, right? It's good. But we don't move the ball in here, do we? No, you move the ball out there. The game is played out there in neighborhoods and in homes and in workplaces, and emergency rooms, and soccer fields, and football fields. That's where it's played. That's, that, that's it. It's played out there. And when the body is strong like that, it's brilliant. Things happen. 
when each piece is doing what it's supposed to be doing. My favorite story of this was a couple years ago. A policeman dropped off somebody at church. And so the coffee people were like, hey, the police just dropped somebody off, man. You better go talk to him. So I'm like, okay, fine. I get volunteered for that. I'm like, hey, what's going on, bro? He's like, well, I was driving this morning and my car broke down. So I was on the side of the road and I was looking at my car and trying to figure it out when uh, a policeman stopped by and he goes, hey, what's going on? And he goes, ah, my car just broke down. And the policeman was like, where were you headed? Because I was going to church. What church were you heading to? Edgewater Christian Fellowship. He's like, oh, that's a great church. It's my church. Hop in, I'll give you a ride. So he dropped him off right here. And when the guy got out, this is what he said. He said, thank you. That is the first time I've ever got out of a police car without a new pair of bracelets. Thank you. <laughs> that's the body doing what the body does. And it's strong and powerful. The biggest surprise in 20 years of ministry to me has been the strength of the body of Christ when the body of Christ is playing the game out in the community. That's been the biggest surprise. This is awesome and I appreciate it and I love it. But man, when we are landscaping for Jesus, when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, wherever it's at, that strong, incredible body life that changes a city each of us in our homes, at our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, wherever it is, listening to God's spirit. Hey, mercy room, go talk to that guy. Brilliant, powerful, incredible. One final thing, and then we'll take communion. Going back to verse one, here's something that you see. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Some went into the city and some stayed out in the towns. Some went in, some stayed out. That is a theme throughout the Bible. Some stay and some go. So we have Daniel. Daniel, one of the most brilliant men, gets this prophecy that, hey, time to go home. Time for the people to go home. It's coming. Daniel never left Babylon. He always stayed in Babylon because he was called to Babylon. I'm not called to go to Jerusalem. It's not my calling. I'm staying in Babylon, the most wicked city in the Bible. Starts in Genesis 11 as wicked, goes all the way to Revelation 18 as wicked. It's the most wicked city in the Bible. And David, or Daniel says, I'm called to this city. I'm called to this city. Ezra and Nehemiah, no, hey, we're called to leave the city and we're called to go over and be in Jerusalem. That's where we're called to be, to build God's city in Jerusalem. Esther, wave after wave, have, they've left the empire and headed to Jerusalem, but Esther and Mordecai, they don't go. They stay in the Persian empire. They stay in Babylon. Why? Because God had them there. And a bunch, thousands, tens of thousands of Jewish people, their lives were saved because Esther and Mordecai stayed put in a wicked empire instead of moving to the promised land. Because some stay and some go. And never in the Bible is it like, well, they're a lot better because they went or they're a lot better because they stayed. It's what did God call you to do? I think it's much less in life where you go. It's more, 
hey, can I use you when you're there? That's the main thing God wants. And I mention all this because we're starting a school called Rogue Christian Academy. And I'm super proud of it. I'm super excited about it. Love the board that's come together. Love the hiring of the teachers that are there. It's a really good crew. Great admin, great ideas, great vision for it. All in, super proud, love it. But does that mean I don't like public schools? No. Uh Uh-uh. Some are called to go and some are called to stay. We need in public education, a bunch of Daniels that are saying, I will not eat the king's meat. We need a bunch of Esther's that are saying, for such a time as this, God has called me to this place. We need a bunch of people like that because maybe we'll have 150 kids at Rogue Christian Academy, which would be awesome, great. How many kids go to public school in Josephine County? 9,000? The one teacher sees about 150 kids every single day. One teacher does that much work. My goodness, we need Daniels and Esthers that are saying in our public schools, we are gonna shine the light of Jesus. We're bringing him in, velvet steel, I call it, full of empathy, full of kindness, full of love, but a backbone saying we will not compromise. We're bringing Jesus. We're gonna shine to the students, to admin, to this place. We need them. I love that. We're gonna fight the good fight until God calls us somewhere else, right? Not one's better than the other. We need both. It's not either or, it's both and. So I'm very, very proud of public teachers. And I've talked to a ton of them that are saying, this is my mission. God's called me there. God's called my family there. We invest in These students and teachers, we have prayer meetings. I say, praise God, we need a ton of that because that's light. So here's what I'd love to do. Any public school people in service today, raise your hand, would you? Thank you. And would you put your hand up again because I just wanna pray for you. You guys got a week left. Finish strong, do what God has you. So raise your hand back up. We're just gonna pray for you. God's blessing, God's power, God's strength on you. So if you see someone around with their hand up, just put a hand on them, lay your hand on them. It's just a way of agreeing and saying, hey, we're the body and we're taking care of the body right now. So Jesus, thank you for these teachers, these admins, these workers, whatever they're doing at our public schools. I pray that your spirit would be filling them in this final week or two of school, to finish strong, to shine with brilliance, your love and your compassion and your truth. And may they do that in a way that honors you and glorifies you. May they know today that what they're doing is so needed. There needs to be salt. There needs to be light. There needs to be good works going into every aspect of our community. And they're touching thousands and thousands of students every single day. So may you take their five loaves and their two fish even this day and break it and use it and multiply it so that many children learn of Jesus and love you like they do. So may you bless them and keep them and may your face shine upon them today. And I ask this in your name, amen, amen. Thank you guys.